Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. In this episode, we have two hosts, Matt Bates and Aaron Heim, who are talking to two theologians and biblical scholars. So Scott McKnight and Hans Borsma are both going to be speaking about books they wrote where they're trying to talk to each other. So uh, Hans Borsma wrote Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew, and Scott McKnight wrote Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish, Wish Theologians Knew. So it's a packed episode, a lot to discuss here, and we hope you enjoy it. I want to say a special thank you to Ed Hackey for producing this show, as he does each week, bringing you these episodes. So special thanks to Ed. Uh, we appreciate all your hard work, and we hope you have a good holiday. And also, I want to uh, thank Rebecca Terhune for her work in marketing and media and helping people find out about the show. And you can do your part too by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I know I say this all the time, so it's a, it really does help and actually is kind of encouraging because I don't we don't always get to hear feedback on the shows from all the listeners who listen. And so it's one way to give feedback as well and express your appreciation for yeah, I'm not going to guilt you into anything. Forget it. You're doing great. Just keep listening. Enjoy the show. And um, we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is Matthew Bates, a co-host for On Script, along with Matt Lynch, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez. Aaron Heim is also co-hosting this episode. What's up, Aaron? Hey, Matt. Welcome, everyone, to OnScript, where we're seeking to bring you the best of recent biblical and theological scholarship. In the introduction to Scott McKnight's book, Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew, Scott says the following, I am convinced that we must begin with the Bible, and we must let the Bible speak on its own, and we must cede to the, Bible's, the, we must cede to the Bible the categories it provides. Meanwhile, in the foreword of that same book, Hans Borsma reacts to Scott's approach. Hans says this, Perhaps after a beer or two, I might dare ask Scott, but isn't Scripture itself the outcome of tradition? And if so, doesn't this priority of tradition over Scripture have implications for how we read the Bible? Unbelievable. Scott and Hans. astonishing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Scott and Hans are here with Aaron and I. Uh, Scott and Hans have penned dueling books published by IVP Academic. Uh, Hans Borsma's book is Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew, and Scott McKnight's is Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew. Entertainingly, they've both also written forewords to one another's books. Scott, you're an OnScript veteran. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Matt. Good to see you and Aaron. Thank you. Doing great, Hans. Matt. Thank you. Very good to see you both. Yeah, thanks, Hans. Welcome to the show. So, Hans, we wonder, uh, have you had a beer or two yet today? 
Uh, no, it's a little early here. It's 10 after 10. And uh, I, I remember, you know, what uh, the, the Peter exhorts us in his, uh, in his sermon in the book of Acts, not to drink too early. So I haven't done that yet. Um, I wrote a commentary but, on this this morning on that very passage. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So no, no beer yet. But I think Scott and I can talk without beer. Well, Scott, can you sharpen your articulation uh, regarding why you think it's imperative that we allow the Bible to speak on its own terms and that we prioritize the categories that it provides? You know, all these conversations can go on endlessly uh, with nuances and definitions, but uh, we make a claim for Scripture that we don't make for any other writing in history. No matter how valuable someone finds the Nicene Creed or Augsburg or Westminster, if you go in that direction, or some other uh, creed, the 39 articles, you no one makes or should be making the claim that they are superior to Scripture, but rather the articulation of theology on the basis of Scripture. So I would contend that we have to begin with Scripture. Um, and Hans makes a very interesting point, but I want to—I'll push back on that slightly. If he—if he says that Scripture is the result of tradition, I say yes. Definitely. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel is the tradition of the apostles. But the New Testament texts are the apostolic tradition that is fixed at some level so that it is the implication of a tradition, but that tradition that becomes scripture seized with the, let's say, the completion of the New Testament canon. We can debate about when that happened. Uh, but um, that tradition, in some level, seized. We don't add any more books to the New Testament. So, but, I, but I agree. It is the result of a tradition. And I just, I just said this in a class the other day, and a, a student wasn't entirely convinced. Well, um, uh, you know, there's obviously an ongoing, lively debate in the church about these things. And Hans, you've already said you haven't had those beers yet. Um, so maybe you need to fortify yourself with a shot of whiskey right now. I don't know, uh, because you, you, we're going to give you the chance right now then to ask your question that you wanted to ask Scott about tradition. Uh, but how about you You spend a little bit of time sharpening it for us? Uh, what do you mean by tradition? What do you mean by the, you know, what, what are your understandings of the role of tradition? Um, and, and so sharpen that question a little bit more for Scott uh, and, and spell it out. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, I, I, I like the way you set this all up as two dueling books. Um, uh, very clever. <laughs> um, uh, but I want, I want to just push back on that before I respond to any comments about scripture and tradition, because these two books, while certainly there are differences here and there, actually are remarkably similar in some ways. Um, Scott makes, gives very high praise to the role of tradition, recognizes um, that tradition, oh, sorry, that scripture always is Im embedded with uh, pre-understandings that we already have, that we bring those to the text. Uh, Scott is a warm endorser of theological interpretation. 
So when when uh, we have we have a biblical scholar and a dogmatic scholar, let's say a theologian and a biblical scholar, whatever, and 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 they're in discussion, we can have all sorts of theologians and all sorts of biblical scholars in in debate, and sometimes it might get very heated. I suspect. Well, I know that sometimes it gets very heated. Yes, um, <laughs> I've experienced with that, but but. Um, Scott and I have a great deal of overlap and, and, and agreement, actually, and I really appreciate that. So that when we wrote um, prefaces or forwards to one another's books, it wasn't just a matter of uh, let's be funky about this. Um, it was a matter of warmly endorsing one another's books because we recognize we have so much in common. Um, now, you very helpfully, and in some ways, uh, it is your role probably as, as uh, the person who interviews us to do this, set us up to to focus on a point of disagreement. And there is disagreement on that point. There's there's no doubt that there's disagreement there. Um, but I would I would just want to emphasize that disagreement lies embedded in much more agreement throughout the bo- both books. Um, so that said, um, when you're asking me um, to take my glass of whiskey and to think more deeply about scripture and tradition or to articulate it more, more carefully. The first thing I, I'd want to say is, in agreement with Scott again, that scripture is um, the uh, ultimate authority within the tradition. And it has a final word within the tradition. It is the uh, most significant monument, as Yves Congar puts it, the most significant monument within the tradition. There's all sorts of praise that we ought to give to scripture because it is, as Scott just said, uh, in many ways, unlike any other book, I have a whole section in my book that actually articulates and emphasizes this, that scripture is unlike any other book. Um, So we ought to give high praise for scripture because it is inspired the way that no other book is. Um, so all of that, I think, needs to be emphasized up front. Um, however, where I probably would want to push back on, on what Scott is saying is, there, is, is here. Um, to read the scripture on its own terms is a phrase that I don't find particularly helpful. And the reason for that is that that phrase itself, as such, doesn't take into account those pre-understandings that I know that Scott does want to take into account. Um, There are pre-understandings that we take to the text, um, and there are metaphysical assumptions, I think, whether we like metaphysics or not. Uh, There are metaphysical assumptions, all of us have them, that we take to the text. And it seems to me that uh, modern metaphysical assumptions, particularly nominalist ones, are especially unhelpful to treat a text such as Holy Scripture. Um, we need to come to the scriptures with a lens of the tradition. Um, and that those lenses uh, have typically been realist lenses. And of course, I, do, I talk a lot about Platonism and Urplatonism in my book, and uh, we can talk about that long and, uh, for a long time. Whether, whether those lenses need to be Platonist. Um, but for now, I think what we'll do in terms of our discussion here, uh, it's important to have, to have metaphysical lenses of one sort or another and to acknowledge them. So we don't read scripture, I think, on its own terms ever. Thank you. Aaron? Well, oh, um, Scott, go ahead. Yeah. All right. Um, I think the first step in reading scripture is to let Matthew be Matthew, say, let Romans be Romans, 
let Peter be Peter, and to listen carefully to their voice, in a sense, doing our best to bracket off when we're reading Peter to bracket off Paul uh, and at some level, so that we let Peter talk. F.W. Bear long ago convinced me in his little commentary on First Peter that Peter's more Pauline than most people want to acknowledge, but let's just say Hebrews or First uh, John, uh, letting them talk the way they talk so that we hear their voice. As when I read you, Hans, uh, I I try to I try to do my best to understand you on your own terms. Um, when I listen, when I read Aaron or Matt, I try to hear them on their own terms. Um, so that I've, I've, I've sense that I'm coming to terms with their authentic personal voice. I think we need to do that first with Scripture uh, to the degree that we can um, while knowing that we are standing there surrounded by not a cacophony of voices, but a symphony of traditional theological affirmations. So, what do you what do you think, Hans? Is, is, don't you think you have to begin with letting, say, Matthew say what Matthew says? Um, no, I don't actually. That 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 moment is there, Scott. That moment is there. Um, but I think we begin with with our faith commitments, with our Christological faith commitments. And from those faith commitments, in other words, we, if, you, if you look at it in, in the context of the relationship between nature and the supernatural, I think we need to begin with the supernatural, with a Christological starting point. And, from, and, and, the, and for that, you need all, all of the scriptures, and you need all of the tradition. From that, you then go to the text. And there is a moment, there's a sort of what, what Vatican II calls a relative autonomy of nature. There is a, a, a relative, mo a moment where you say, so what actually is, is, is Paul saying here? Or what actually is, is, is uh, Obadiah um, uh, saying here? Whoever it may be, historically speaking. Um, but, you know, I've, it, it's interesting to me that when you say, well, when I listen to you, Hans, or when I, when I listen to you, Aaron, I try to hear you on your own terms. But the Bible is, as, as you just rightly said, unlike any other book. And that counts particularly, I think, um, for when we when we try to find Christ in the scriptures. The starting point is always, I think, Christological and pneumatological and ultimately Trinitarian starting point. Um, so that we rightly read, say, Paul with Peter in mind or with which other whichever other biblical author in mind already. And and the the reason for that, I think, is that meaning particularly meaning of, of scripture, is not primarily historical, is not primarily a matter of looking backward, but is a matter of encounter, is a matter primarily, I think, of looking forward. Now, of course, there are, there are you, you can try and discover a historical mean, uh, meaning as far as that is possible. There is a relative autonomy of nature, again, but that's not the purpose of, of, uh, of the church's reading of, of, of the divine scriptures. 
let me take the chance to introduce you more fully, then we'll, we'll give Aaron the floor for a couple questions. So Scott McKnight is the Julius Armanti Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He's written more than 50 books and also blogs regularly on his influential Jesus Creed. He's a sought-after conference speaker and a renowned expert on early Christianity, having written books both on the academic and popular level, including Jesus Creed, The Blue Parakeet, Open to the Spirit, and The King Jesus Gospel. He's also written books for scholarly audience, including several commentaries in the NICNT, the New International Commentaries on the New Testament series with Erdmans. Meanwhile, Hans Borsma holds the Order of St. Benedict Servants of Christ Endowed Professorship in Ascetical Theology, at Neshota House Theological Seminary. He's the author of numerous books, including Seeing God with Erdman's Scripture as Real Presence with Baker Academic and Heavenly Participation with Erdman's. Let me jump in with a question that takes us, I think, slightly in a different direction. Um, but I have a follow-up question that I'm curious about Christological hermeneutics in this. So I'm going to try to work it in. Uh, but let's let me let me say this, Scott. In the introduction of your book, you mention the need to include a diverse range of voices in the conversation, and you actually say, "I have in writing this book at times paused to ask myself whether the five points I make here are not five white male topics of discussion." Now, I wonder why is that important to you? Um, to include this range of voices, and I guess um, maybe more pointedly, how do you know when something is a white male topic of discussion and not just a topic of discussion? I think I would ask you. I think it's invisible in many ways to white males to see their white maleishness in their categories. But Aaron, this started with me way back in the 90s. I noticed that there were, you know, this was the time when all of a sudden we were beginning to see an African-American reading of Paul's ethics by Brian Blount and a Latin American reading of this and a womanist reading of this and a feminist reading. And I, I started noticing this and I participated in the historical Jesus seminar at the executive level for um, I think more than five years. And other than Paula Fredericks, there were almost no voices of women in the conversation of the historical Jesus. And while Gustavo Gutierrez had said things about Jesus, he wasn't really doing historical Jesus studies. So it just made me wonder, you know, so this has been going on for 30 years for me almost, is are some of these conversations just things that white men like to talk about because they've been a part of the tradition, the system, and other people say, I don't, I don't look at things like this, so I don't want to participate. So I, I would say that that first, but I I believe that the writers of the Bible have diverse voices. So I, I really like the old image by G.B. Caird in his theology of the New Testament. And uh you're you're not very far from where this took place. But um, Aaron, you aren't anyway. I wish I were there. Um, that he said he invited all these different authors of the New Testament that are discernible to the table and asked them a question like, what is salvation? And he let each one speak without uh, unduly coercing uh, their voices into some kind of synthesis that no one believed, but that the theologian believes that that's what the Bible says. 
I like this part of theology. I, I like the importance of listening to various voices, and I think you can't read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and not notice some differences, especially with Luke between the other two. And of course, specialists in both of them are going to argue with that. And then get to John, and you're going to hear a different voice. Um, so I, I believe that the voices of the New Testament, of the Bible, are not to be colonized in a way that doesn't respect their singularity and integrity as voices. And since then, I've tried to do this. I don't think I'm as, success, as successful at this as I'd like to be. Um, you know, I get these books and I read them, and sometimes I don't know, you know, like a Latin American perspective, Robert Chow Romero, and I don't know what to do with it sometimes when I'm doing something. And so they become silence because I had to put them on mute because I wasn't capable of drawing them into the conversation. So that that's why that's important to me is I'm committed to allowing the different voices to speak. Thanks, Scott. And Hans, you seem a little more wary of this uh, trend toward what you term in a few places in your book, uh, identity politics or something like that. So what worries you about you know, studies in theology that are more upfront, perhaps, with their locatedness in a particular community or a particular group or from a particular perspective? Um, what I think we need to do with our locatedness is we need to always submit it to the authority of uh, scripture and to the authority of tradition. In other words, my locatedness as a, as a white male ought not to determine my reading of scripture. Neither do I think that the uh, locatedness of um, any uh, Latin American or uh, African theologian ought to, ought to determine uh, his or her reading of scripture. Um, the tradition is, of course, diverse, and we as readers uh, are also diverse. Um, but we have a shared tradition. We have uh, shared creeds. We have uh, shared writings, um, and we have a long shared tradition in which all these voices, into which all, all of these voices enter. And when I make my particular identity or context or situation, um, when I let it determine my reading of scripture, my worry, as to, to use your language, my worry about that is that I, that I allow my own context to override uh, the authority of scripture. Thanks. I'll try to pull my Christological hermeneutic question together then based on these last two answers. Oh, don't I get what? to, don't I get to. Oh, sure. Sc sure. To... Scott. Sure. <laughs> Hans, I would say that the, the statement that I don't want to let my white, let's just say your location, mm -hmm. determine your rating of scripture, I would say is a naive dismissal that it is determining your. So for instance, Hans, in our conversations, uh, after we both wrote our books, you know, I asked if you had read certain theologians and you hadn't read those theologians. And I thought to myself, I thought the theologians read these kinds of people, you know? Um, so, and, and those, those uh, things I read, I was thinking at the time of Catherine Sonderegger, eventually wore me out, and um, Robert Jensen. So um, I, I, do think, I do think that our 
location shapes what we see so much that we need other locations to give us the balance to see some things in the text that our location in many ways prevents us. And even with respect to our reading of the tradition, even the Cappadocians or Augustine, um, I, I think that that uh, different different locations will shed light both on the text and the tradition. So what I mean by the text is scripture. Yeah, I think it's true that one that one's own situation, one, one's context determines the kinds of questions that one has. Um, it determines uh, the way we look at those questions, all of those kinds of things that you're talking about. Uh, I think that's true. It's just that when I phrase my questions and when I, when I, even when I raise my questions, um, they ought to be shaped by the gospel primarily. Now, the heart of the gospel in many ways, I think you could say is, say, Philippians 2 uh, or 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I think it is. Christ, who was rich, becomes poor for our sake in order that we who are poor become rich. Um, he, becomes in, he takes on human flesh in order that we might be divinized. Uh, there is a self-abnegation in the gospel that I think lies at, the ver- at its very heart. Hmm. Um, and there's a humility that St. Augustine speaks about time and time again, grounded within the incarnation itself, that lies at the heart of the gospel. Um, when I read Gutierrez, and when I read other liberation theologians or other um, people who may write from within their own context in order to promote that particular context, um, I, some, I often uh, sense little of the humility that I sense in St. Augustine. Um, what I sense is a promotion of one's own context rather than a self-abnegation of, one, of oneself to others and, and therefore also to the tradition of the church. So it's not so much a disagreement with you, I think, Scott, that, yeah, our, 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 our situatedness um, colors the way that we that we look at things. It's more an attitudinal um, uh, approach that one has, or ought to have, of of uh, not promoting oneself, not promoting one's own situation, but being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That I think is the very heart of the New Testament, and um, uh, identity politics, which I think. Um, is closely tied to the uh, to a number of the diverse groups that you mentioned. Um, I think it often does the very opposite. Okay, so here's here's what I would say. All right, so you look at you look at the gospel, uh, you look at the book of Revelation and the author. Let's just say it's John, whether it's the apostle or not. Uh, I, I'm not sure we can say that. The that is the voice of a minority who is marginalized. That is not the voice of someone in power and control. So what I see in Brian Blount, who says in his Then the Whisper Put on Flesh, which I think is a very interesting book. What I see in Brian Blount is saying, my voice has been silenced. And I want to speak because you don't hear me unless I speak because you've silenced my voice. He's saying to the powerful people. So he wants to see how the scriptures can speak to liberate African-Americans 
from systemic oppression. I don't think a white man can see that until the black man tells him what he sees. I, I can tell you this, I grew up in a mixed community. I grew up in a locker room and all my heroes when I was a boy were athletes and they were most of them were black. And so I, I have a sensitivity here, but I don't think I saw things that are in the text until Brian Blount and Tommy uh, Slater have shown them to me that Tina Pippin shows me in the book of Revelation, even though I think a lot of things she sees aren't there. So I think that these voices point to us things we're not seeing because we are not in the same location that those writers are. Yeah, again, I have no disagreement, Scott, that um, other people in different contexts from our own um, see things that we don't see. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's just that when you say that uh, somebody reads the book of Revelation or any other book for that matter, in order to, to see how it can be helpful to, to uh, get rid of systemic racism or whatever else, uh, whatever other kind of political oppression there may be or economic oppression, then we're reading scripture, not just being aware of our own context, but we're actually reading scripture with a very specific purpose, namely to rid ourselves or to, to, to try and rid ourselves or, or open other people's eyes uh, to a particular form of, of oppression. Now, the book of Revelation itself, it talks a lot about uh, oppression indeed, and it's written from within a minority context. And as, as you put it, um, it is it speaks about victory, um, but it, it actually... Um, when it turns to the paradigmatic moment of, of liberation, uh, Exodus 15, it allegorizes it. And in, in chapter 5, it, it speaks of a, a salvation, a liberation that's not political or economic in context uh, or in, 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 uh, in direction. It speaks of a, a liberation that, is, um, that has to do with eternally being in the presence of God. Um, and it's not a political liberation, therefore, not an economic liberation that is at the heart of the book of Revelation. Aaron, you have a question for Yeah, us. I think, I, um, I feel like we're, we're a ways from where I, where I wanted to, to focus the conversation <laughs> at this point, um, which, is, which is okay, but, um, and there's... Well, feel, there's <laughs> I was going to say, feel free to jump to a speed round if you wish, or you can ask your question that you'd intended. Well, yeah, I, do, I do want to hear, and maybe, you know, yeah, I want to hear the answer to this because I think, um, and I'm going to, to speak as a biblical scholar, not quite well uh, well versed in theology as a theologian would be, but it is an area that I care a lot about, so bear with me. It seems to me that when we speak about a Christological hermeneutic, um, we very quickly jump from Christological to supernatural, and I wonder if the humanity of Christ actually points us in a helpful way of thinking about how we read the scriptures in relation to their human authors. Because it seems to me that when we talk about Christological hermeneutics, um, we sometimes think that Christ is going to supernaturally um, overshadow the voice of humans. But I wonder if um, Christ's humanity actually points us in, in some helpful ways. So I just wonder um, 
I guess I, I wonder what you make of that because it seems like Scott's reading of the New Testament might be a little closer to that kind of a Christological hermeneutic that would make space for that. And Hans, it seems like when you say Christologic you mean, um, hermeneutic, you mean something slightly different from that, um, more toward a sacramental hermeneutic. So um, I just think I, we could get some clarification around that term because I think it's being used differently. Yeah, thank you for the Aaron. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that I uh, understand your unpacking of Christological in terms of distinguishing between divine and human. If, if I hear you well, what you're saying is if we take Christology as a starting point and we recognize the genuine humanity of Jesus Christ, um, then that also implies that we can see him in that affirming the particularity of, of the human author, something to that effect, correct? And we, we can take that seriously. That's what I hear you saying. And um, I agree with that. I, that's not how I talk about Christology in my book, but I, I, I have no, no quibble with that at all. What I, what I am after in my book when I talk about a Christological starting point uh, to interpretation is uh, I distinguish between sacrament and reality. And I treat the biblical text as a sacrament. And I'm arguing that the Christological um, reality, as I, as I call it in the book, is the very aim, is the hidden thing that lies already within, uh, within the, um, the Old Testament text. The Old Testament is a sacrament um, of, of that, that God intends for us to unpack so as to, va- so as to find ultimately um, the reality of Christ himself. Um, that this Christ is both divine and human, as you as you helpfully point out, um, is, is is absolutely right. It's just that the reason I begin, indeed, as you put it in your question, with the supernatural, is um, it seems to me that we should not treat the Old Testament in particular, the Old Testament text, as simply a historical record, so that we do our job as historians uh, rather than as theologians when we when we read the biblical text. But does, does that in some someone? way then, yeah, I think it does. And I think in you, you characterize my question well, but does that in some way then negate the human author and their, um, is that is that the thing that we need to pull back? Because that seems to then, I mean, you, you say pull back or unwrap or um, whatnot, but does that, does that somehow negate the, the um, humanity of that author? No, it doesn't. But I do think we've become Antiochenes, all of us, by default, sort of. Um, I think I think there's an Antiochian triumph in in Western theology that's generally unhelpful, um, and I think that's why I purposely, in response to some of your earlier questions, I kept talking about Holy Scripture and Divine Scripture, as I think you picked up. Um, I, I do that on purpose because I think we need to rediscover divine providence in as as, as a fact as something that factors into our interpretation, and um, we need to. Uh, learn to factor in again that um, God is primarily the author of Holy Scripture. Now, of course, of course, God uses human authors. I'm not sure that I need even Christology to to affirm that God uses human authors in in this process. And we can, to varying degrees, discover um, historical meanings. Uh, It's just, I think, important to admit to ourselves that when we do history, we only ever arrive at approximations. And therefore, um, when we do historical exegesis, all we ever get is approximations. There's never, we never arrive at the meaning of the text, historically speaking. And 
So it, it ought not to be our starting point, and it ought not to be our ultimate aim. Uh, it, it, Christ is both the starting point, the alpha, and the ultimate aim, the omega. Um, so while I, I totally agree that, that uh, Christologically we need to distinguish between the two natures of Christ, and we also see analogously at least, analogously at least, uh, divine authorship and human authorship. I'm not quite sure. I'd have to think about how to connect them. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can simply jump from the one to the other. And I'm even less sure that we should separate the human from the divine. The, I'm an Alexandrian in my Christology. And I think it's important um, to, to state that it is the divine word that assumes human flesh, not vice versa. Thanks. Scott, do you have thoughts about this or should we go to a speed round? Better go to a speed round. That's way beyond the way I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't I go first with the speed round for, for Scott? Because um, as as Matt said, you've been on OnScript before, but you've never had me for a speed round before. That's so, right. Um, I haven't. I'm probably not as... Uh, uh, off the wall is Matt. So I just have some, some basic things that I like to, I just like to know about people. So they're, they're straightforward questions and helps me to me to know you a little better. Uh, yeah. Our listeners to know you better. So here we go. Scott mountains or ocean. You live Midwest in the Midwest plains, Midwest <laughs> plains, cornfields, oh, cornfields. Oh, Oh, that makes me homesick. I was, I'm from I like Midwest mountains too. and I like mountains and oceans. They're all the same to me. I like, I like a golf. I don't even course. know what that means, Scott. <laughs> All right. Um, since you've been on Onscript before, I think you probably answered the 50 years question. So what theologian or biblical scholar do you think is most undervalued? Oh, that is an interesting question. I don't think I've, I don't think Matt asked me this one before. The most No, he didn't. Most, it's my twist it, on it. It's the, which theologian you said? Yeah. Which theologian or biblical scholar do you think is most undervalued? Gut reaction. I don't, I don't know. I haven't, I mean, I think the good ones are valued. Um, <laughs> I can't think of uh, people that are really making good points that nobody's paying attention to. All right. Um, do you have any hidden talents? Yes, but does one talk about one's hidden talents? Then it's, then then it's, it's not no hidden longer, anymore? Then it's not hidden and then it's, then you're bragging. Um, I was a scratch golfer at one time. Uh, so I could I could shoot par golf at one time. I don't play much anymore. I don't hardly ever play. I played last year with my grandson. That's impressive. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I play a lot of golf. Oh, good. What's the last novel you read? Um, John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, about the trip of the Jodes across the United States to California. It is. Yeah. Quite, quite a story. It is quite I, a story. It's not I the like best it. John Steinbeck book, but it's quite a story. What, which Clearly one the of best. his do you like the best? Oh, East of Eden. East this of is Eden. not a question. <laughs> I'm no, reading I, it right now, but the critics think that uh, his I best one is the Grapes East of Wrath. I know. I'm reading, I'm reading East of Eden right now. Oh, that's such a good book. Uh, what's something that really bugs you? Uh, it really, okay. I mean, this is more moral than anything else. It really bothers me how corrupted in power 
pastors and church leaders have become. Mm. Uh, this is uh, my daughter and I, along with Chris, who's not been a part of the writing project directly, are just astounded at the stories that come our way of the violence, the power violence, especially. We don't get the stories about sexual abuse so much, uh, but the power violence used by pastors and churches. I, I cannot comprehend how pastors can be this manipulative and power mongering. Yeah, we've been listening to the Mars Hill podcast in our house, and it's um, it's just really sad. And it's not. Just I can't even listen. I mean, I it's yeah, listen. yeah. Sick, sick. Okay, on a lighthearted note, um, if you were an animal, Scott, what animal would you be? I would be a wood duck. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, I asked Phil Ziegler that question when he was on OnScript, and um, he said that he'd be a badger. So I'm reviving this now, Phil, if you're listening. And uh, I want you to know that his colleagues bought him a badger, a very fancy okay. badger that now sits in his office. So, uh, you know, you should now have your colleagues buy you a wood duck that sits in your office. All right, Scott, last, last speed round question. What's one thing you wish all your incoming seminary students knew? I wish they knew that uh, the essence of the Christian life is to follow Jesus and to be in routine, constant communion uh, with him in prayer and communication. Hmm. Thanks. And Matt, back to you. All right, Hans, let's go ahead and uh, we'll do our speed round with you right now as well. Um, but uh, I, I'm anxious to speak about Platonism with you, as you probably make your most pr provocative claim in your book, No Plato, No Scripture. Uh, so we'll, 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 we'll get ready to move to that right after the speed round. Mine aren't as gentle as Aaron's. Mine are, mine are meaner. Um, but, I uh, thought this was pretty mean. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, just wait. Just wait. Uh, so uh, what's, we'll start out not, not too bad. What's a trend in society that scares you? Uh, surveillance. Surveillance. Yes, I don't like being surveilled. Yeah, I get and that. And I think we're heading that direction. When when we have technology, you know, when we have technology, we'll use it. And and I see that increasingly being the case. I don't like it. Are you willing to sing a song for me right now on the spot? Which one would you like me to sing? Um, <laughs> uh, how about uh, Christ the Lord is Risen Today? Christ the Lord. No, I can't even start that, man. <laughs> you, um, you're doing, you were doing good. That was a good start. Risen Today. <laughs> Oh, oh, See, I tried to help you out. I joined in the chorus, but I'm a horrible yeah. singer too. I, I, we appreciate terrible. your we appreciate <laughs> you know, your. Boldness. I gave him my best. <laughs> that is that was oh. good. I that's all we asked for. Um, what's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last fifty years? Packer once uh, J.I. Packer once spoke at um, at one of our churches. And he says, you know, I, I only read books that are at least 500 years old. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> I think that's great. But the, the most important theological work of the last 50 years, maybe I would say Yves Congar's um, book on the Holy Spirit, his, his trilogy on the Holy Spirit. All right. What's something you find embarrassing? The most embarrassing thing, the most shameful thing is, I think, uh, the kind of thing that, that Scott talked about is when Christian leaders, um, when they when they sin, and when I when I fall short, which I regularly do, um, I'm embarrassed. But embarrassment is probably not the best word. I'm I'm I'm, I'm ashamed. Yeah. 
and and that's the that's the worst yeah yeah we all we all kind of feel like we want to hide in those moments uh, yes. as uh, genesis would describe it right um uh, how about uh do you believe in ghosts well i suppose it mean it depends on what you mean by ghosts i mean just um, traditionally like if scott dies might he be hanging about someplace <laughs> Oh, oh, Scott, Scott's going to be hanging around places. There's no doubt. <laughs> He's going to be haunting yes. libraries, haunting seminary students for oh, generations yeah. and generations. Yeah, if, 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 you, if you press me, I, I, I'm still a little fuzzy on the word ghost, but, but if you press me, I'd rather say yes than no, uh, because I believe we live in a very mysterious place. And, and I, th I think we need a recovery of demonology and of angelology, absolutely. If you were offered a free space flight to the moon and back by Jeff Bezos and one of his shiny new Amazon-ish funded rockets, I guess, are you? would you go? You have a free opportunity to go to the moon. Um, no, I think I, I, it depends. You know, I mean, yeah, my, my first inclination was to say, no, absolutely not. Why would I want to spend so much time with with with? <laughs> um, with well, let me just be, be as neutral as I can with Jeff Bezos. Uh, I, I would have, but maybe that's being selfish because I preached the gospel to him. That's exactly, that was my next thought, you know, uh, then my next thought was, well, maybe I could mean something for him. Um, and, and, and maybe therefore I should accept, but I must be honest. My, my initial inclination was, Oh, keep me far from the place. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for being so fair game and uh, even uh, being willing to sing a song for us. All right, so Hans, you make this very provocative claim in your book, this no Plato, no scripture um, claim. Uh, why do you think a Platonic framework is necessary? Let me first say that I, I um, make that argument as part of a broader claim that we need metaphysics. And the broader claim is that you can't come to scripture without a metaphysical framework. And the second thing I should say is um, I'm not making a plea for us to become straight-up Platonists, because I think you cannot be a straight-up Platonist and a Christian. It doesn't work. And the third comment maybe is, I define the kind of Platonism and the impact of, of Platonism um, that it ought to have, at least, I think, on our biblical reading fairly tightly, in that I talk about ur-Platonism. Um, and I say, in particular, we need, um, we need to recognize that um, Platonism, and in particular, Christian Platonism, has functioned in an anti-materialist fashion. So the anti-materialism, I think, is, is important. Um, and for my, for my purpose, perhaps most importantly, secondly, I say it is um, anti-nominalist. So it allows us to be a realist in our claims. And I think uh, for, to make Christian truth claims uh, cogently, um, you, need to be a, you need to be a realist. Um, and then I make several other points, anti-relativism, anti-skepticism, uh, and so on, in connection with core Platonism. But the most important thing for me is realism. Um, gotcha. You need realism, I think, for Christian Platonism. And let me let me probe that further then. And um, yeah, that was something that I found troubling in the book, maybe, was the link between Platonism and realism. Um, so maybe it's just a misunderstanding, or maybe you could clarify further, but would you consider their Aristotelian Thomistic tradition um, a form of Ur-Platonism then? It seems like you, you want to stick with the Platonic label, um, but obviously the tradition, you know, from Thomas, high middle ages onward, um, and the great tradition, as you would probably define it, would, would certainly be informed by the Aristotelian synthesis. And at least my understanding of the philosophical tradition or reading of it would be that Aristotle would be every bit as much realist 
you know, as the Platonic tradition, because of course, Aristotle identifies the form of the thing in the thing itself, right? So he's, he's a realist in that sense. Um, and yeah, so maybe you could respond to that. Um, how do you respond to those who want to push back on your, your Platonic synthesis and say, what about Aristotle? What about, what about the Thomistic theological tradition? Yeah, no, in terms of the Thomistic theological tradition, uh, first thing is that uh, St. Thomas was still, I think, very much a Platonist. And I think it, it's, a, it's a consensus among, among Aquinas scholars today that the Platonic side of, of Thomas Aquinas, for example, his use of, of Dionysius, um, is huge. And the result of that, I think, in Thomas, and partially also, in, in, at least in parts of the Thomas tradition, as a result of that, there is a participatory strain within, within the Thomas tradition still, and certainly within Thomas himself, um, that is Platonic in provenance. And uh, despite your, your warm uh, encouragement of, of Aristotelianism as being or endorsement of its, its presence within the broad Christian tradition, actually, I think the, 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 the truth of the matter is that Christian Platonism has been the overriding position within Christian tradition. And for a large part, although Thomas, one could debate about Thomas, I think it's fair to say, I'm willing to admit to you that there is a distinction, for example, between nature and the supernatural in Thomas that you don't find in, in, in the tradition preceding him. That said, um, St. Thomas was was. Uh, still very Platonic in, in, in many ways, I think. But it's true, the hylomorphism of, of Thomas makes me less than comfortable. Uh, you're, you're talking about how form uh, has to do, is, is present uh, with matter, and you see that in, in, in Thomas. I'm, I'm, that precisely, I think, shows the beginning of a breakdown in the 13th century, um, a breakdown in participatory thinking. Um, so it's true that I don't use Aristotle the way that I use Plato, and it has everything to do with the kind of realism <laughs> that one finds in the Aristotelian tradition, and in particular the way in which the Thomas tradition appropriates that. So the Thomas tradition, I think, especially after St. Thomas, uh, tends to separate nature and the supernatural in ways that, the early, that earlier Christian Platonism uh, did not do, and that the broad Christian tradition has not done. Yeah, I think um, certainly you're right. I mean, at least from my reading of the history of the tradition, yeah, ideas of supernatural and natural arise before 14th century, or you know, something like that. You know, and that um, we we don't have that kind of split. I'm sorry, not 14th century, but, but on the other side of Thomas, be 10th century or something like that, and uh, we don't see that kind of split. Um, you know, in, until uh, the high Middle Ages. Um, so. Yeah, but um, certainly, though, the Aristotelian tradition um, has been around for a thousand years uh, and is um, maybe even would be considered the Thomistic, you know, the theological tradition, which would include an Aristotelian synthesis and certainly Platonic elements uh, is is pretty firmly entrenched, so much so that the Catholic Church would consider that to be their official theology. So, um, yeah, it's something to at least think carefully about, right? Um, how, um, yeah, to what degree... Um, I guess Plato has a corner on realism. Is my sense maybe right that it's the chain of being dimension of Plato that's really critical for you and and his understanding of universals? His understanding of universals, yes. I don't think I talk in the book about chain of being. No, you don't, but I'm just, I'm speculating. Um, but, so but go, yes, go ahead, yeah. Yes, I do think 
that um, universals are tied in with a participatory mindset, uh, the reality of ideas, for example. And I think that uh, for Thomas, um, because he ties forms directly in with matter, um, the independence of forms is, 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 is a no-go. And that's the case also for Aristotle, where that's where Aristotle differs from Plato. So the the importance of universals is is or the place of universals is directly tied up indeed with my with my appraisal of of realism versus nominalism. Um, in terms of chain chain of being, uh, depending on what you mean by that exactly, um, but yes, a Neoplatonist understanding where where God is the the suffusive source of all goodness and is goodness itself, so that everything emanates from the goodness of God himself. And that there is a variety of, 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 of shares in the being of God, a variety of, of intensity of, of participation in God. Uh, if, if that's what you mean with, with chain of being, then yes, I'm on board, yes. Erin? Mm. Yeah, I guess my question with this, um, Hans, is just, um, when you speak about this being the dominant uh, voice in the Christian tradition, how far back are we going? Um, because I guess if we if we also see scripture as part of the Christian tradition, does it matter um, that does does Paul have to have this kind of Platonic metaphysic in order to write what he does? And does his audience have to understand it? And um, I, I guess as a biblical scholar, I'm enough worried about historical context that it it would trouble me if we had a reading of Paul that kind of ran roughshod over what Paul might have meant. I'm enough committed to authorial intent to think that yeah. Paul meant something by his participatory language and that we should care about what that is. Um, yes. And could he have meant which, what you're proposing, I guess, this is my, my ultimate question. Right. If you're asking whether St. Paul articulates uh, a metaphysic, no, he's, he's, he's not giving a, a full metaphysical account. He's not a metaphysician. He's not a philosopher. He's a theologian. But does St. Paul and, 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 and do other, other New Testament writings assume um, a, a, a metaphysical structure in their, when they talk about God and about, his, about God and about his being and about how God relates to the created order, um, then I would say, yes, they do. Um, and um, they certainly do not, the New Testament authors certainly do not assume a modern separation between nature and the supernatural. Um, for for example, the most obvious instance, I think, is the letter to the Hebrews, um, which uses typological language, um, which um, uses language of shadow and reality, which isn't taken from Plato, which isn't directly Platonic, but is very compatible, very compatible with a Platonic metaphysic. And it seems to me that when we read the biblical text, we tend to read it through, um, we tend to, to separate the human and the historical from the divine and the supernatural. We want to read it, quote unquote, on its own terms. And I would say that such a reading of scripture is alien 
to anything those biblical authors might have possibly had in mind. And that when you read some of the early church fathers, whether it's Irenaeus or Justin or with somewhat later St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, their more Platonic ways of, of, of reading scripture is actually very faithful, I think, to um, the way that the, new, the, the biblical authors themselves understood the creator-creature relationship. Thanks. And I certainly don't want to make it sound like I'm advocating for either methodological or metaphysical naturalism. I totally am with you that we need um, we need to have a metaphysical account of our reading. I think my, my issue with um, talking about Platonism as that metaphysical reading um, is just that it seems to quickly, too quickly for my taste, I guess, uh, or comfort, move from talk of the supernatural to something that sounds almost immaterial or static to me. And when I read Hebrews, it seems like it seems like the substance is more substantive than the shadow. Like there's something more material in the author's mind about the unshakable heavenly realm um, than the earthly realm that's passing away. So um, when I teach Hebrews, that's always my, when, when we talk about Hebrews being compatible with Platonism, I'm always saying yes, but there are some key differences, I think, in the metaphysics between the author of Hebrews and the author and, and you know, what, and I'm not you know, quite sure that I understand you. Can, can you articulate the but a little more carefully for me so that well, I can respond properly? I think, I think my, my, it seems like when we talk about universals, it's some, it's some, it, I'm a little hesitant to commit to like the immateriality of the, the of the heavenly realm. It seems like we get there a bit. It, it seems like there's some slippage there. And when I read the materiality of Hebrews, it exists both in the earthly realm, which is in an, an analogous materiality to the more material heavenly realm. Mm. Um, so I'm so, and that's so, and that's where I think the Platonism kind of throws me because it seems like Plato's heaven is non-material. Right, but but so, but you don't want to argue that God is material, do you? No, but that's not quite the same question. I mean, when you're talking about the spirit and the substance, you're, I think you're, you're still speaking about the heavenly realm. Right. There's a there's you know there's a materiality to that. I think that exists in the eschaton, even though God is spirit. When we're talking about heaven and earth, so God created the heaven and the earth. Yes, right. heaven is 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 creature, and and we may want to talk about what what exactly that is. But there is a materiality to that. Um, okay, but but there's not only heaven and earth, but there's also the heaven of heavens, as uh, namely God's own dwelling place. So God Himself is immaterial, as, as I think you rightly say. Now, on a Christian Platonist understanding, the 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 eternal realities of 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 created things, let's call them created things, <laughs> the eternal realities of created things um, have their have their eternal stability within the divine logos, within the divine word, which is to say God himself. They are immaterial. So when, when, when the author to the Hebrews talks about um, the, the eternal realities and, and talks about a, a, a temple that is eternal vis-a-vis the one that's below or a tabernacle that's eternal vis-a-vis one that's below, um, on a Christian Platonist reading of that, that would that would be located within the second person of the Trinity. It's immaterial. 
So with Plato, yes, the forms are immaterial. And right. that's, that's so, essential. So I guess where I want to push back is to say that there are there are Christian readings that are committed to um, the immateriality of God that would not see the heavenly tabernacle in Hebrews as immaterial. Like David Moffat's work is in that yeah, category. Yeah, that, that so strikes I think, me as odd. Well, I mean, but that brings me back to my original question. Does it matter that the author of Hebrews might have had something very different in mind than what you're arguing? Yes, it would matter, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I, I think it would matter. Yeah. Um, yeah anyway, well, that, that's my question. I, yeah, certainly I think that, um, you know, when we think about the whole biblical tradition, there are some parts that, like, are lend themselves more readily to a Platonic substructure and other parts that do not. Um, and obviously, even choosing the book of Hebrews would probably be choosing the one that is the most platonically favorable example. So it's, it's a problem as we try to think across the, you know, the, the breadth of the canon, especially when we get to the Old Testament, right, to to kind of think about what a um, what what it would mean to require a, a platonic or sort of or platonic structure. And I think that's where you're probably seeing a lot of pushback on your work, Hans. Um, you know, and, uh, Scott had to drop off because of a battery issue. Um, so, um, if, if we were to ask Scott to summarize uh, his points, <laughs> I think he would he would probably want to push for the diversity of witness of the voices. Want to push for um, you know to pay attention to the arc of the narrative of scripture, uh, and would want to front a, a very much a, a christological hermeneutic uh, for us. And and of course, like you agree with a lot of that, right? Uh, and uh, um, you would nuance it in slightly different ways. Uh, do you have any kind of final wrap-up thoughts for us, Hans, as as um, uh, maybe a point of or a point of application um, where you where you hope this gets used, or your ideas are informing um, uh, pastoral work in in the church? Uh, maybe two comments. One is um, most of our discussion has, uh, I think, helpfully focused on the distinctives of Scott's work uh, vis-a-vis my work, and which which is which is good and fine. Um, but I, I just want to highlight again, as I started out, by saying that Scott and I actually have an awful lot in common. And, and if you read the books in their, entire, in their entirety, you'll recognize that there is a great deal that we, that we share with each other. So I just want to, want to emphasize that Scott is a theological reader of Scripture and recognizes that theology and, and, and Bible belong together, as do I. So I think it's important to underscore that. And in terms of the um, Christology that, uh, that we've talked about before, um, I think that probably be the pastoral element that I think is, is important. People come to church not to hear a historical account and not to hear the exegetical prowess of the preacher. What they're interested in is um, Jesus Christ, him crucified. They want to know Jesus. And um, if the preacher... Uh, there's an exegetical number that doesn't preach Christ. The preacher has failed to uh, to truly bring the gospel. So, so Christological contents of all of Scripture lies at the heart of what I'm trying to do in this book, and uh, is what motivates me. And I'm sure Scott would um, warmly endorse um, the preaching of Christ. 
Um, so, yeah, and I think you do a nice job of um, some of the questions that we didn't quite get to because we had a lively conversation did highlight more of the continuity in your work. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of common ground. So on the one hand, there is a, a good duel going on here. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, it's certainly the case that you're on the same team and swinging swords uh, in relatively the same direction. So uh, it's important to note that. This is Matthew Bates and Aaron Heim for On Script. We've been speaking with Hans Borsma and Scott McKnight about their two new five things biblical scholars slash theologians wish they knew about the other uh, books that are published by IVP Academic. Uh, these books are hot off the press and fairly hot in terms of content too. They're going to generate a lot of terrific conversation. You'll want to dive into these books. There's a link to them on our website, www.onscript.study. Farewell. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.